All right. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we just thank you that you've given us your word as um, just a tool to strengthen us, to edify us, to build us up, Lord, it, that in it pertains everything to life and godliness. And uh, I just pray that we just apply your word to our lives and just learn from the lessons uh, that are just stored in this awesome book of the knowledge, Lord, that is just so rich with uh, just wealth for us, for our souls. And um, I pray that uh, you would just speak to us today uh, through your word, as you always love to do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, guys, so Johnny asked me to teach Hebrews chapter 3 during the time he got to go on an awesome anniversary with his wife for their 30th. So i um, pretty excited to have this opportunity, and I'm thanking you guys for coming out today and being faithful and having a hunger and a desire for the Word of God. Um, so, as I read this and kind of got a little background on the book of Hebrews, because I've never really read Hebrews, I've never studied Hebrews, and then I got to teach Hebrews, so it was pretty, um, pretty interesting, actually. So the theme of this book is it's being written to um, the Jews, Jewish people, um, because they were converted, these Jewish people were converted to Christianity, um, so they had come to terms that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that there was no other name by which men must be saved. So they had given their life to Christ. They realized he was God. Um, but there was this pull back into the Jewish culture in this area. Um, and the author of this book, which a lot of people think is, is Paul, just based on some of the writings and the style. Um, but I'm not really sure, so I'm just going to say the author. Um, but during this time, the culture was really trying to pull these Jewish people back into the traditions into, you know, the works that they thought they, they had to do to get to heaven. And they were trying to, you know, add things to the Word of God. They're trying to compromise the Word of God to kind of bring these people back so they could have control over them again. Um, but it was awesome because these people were called by God to the faith in Jesus Christ, and they responded. Um, it was revealed to them that Jesus is Lord, as they would say, Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus Messiah, and they responded to that. And we know that anytime someone responds to the calling of God, it's all God's, the glory to God. It's nothing to do with anybody um, in this human realm. It has everything to do with God. As it says in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17, it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? Say that I, the Son of Man, am. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So clearly this was a divine revelation for these Jewish people in this time, that God had revealed himself to these people had given them the chance to receive eternal life, and they responded. And that's an awesome thing because they get to go to heaven, they know the truth. Um, but again, there is still that counteractive pull of the culture, as we kind of see, which we'll kind of get into a little later during this time, to kind of pull them back into the law. Um, <clears throat> so these Jews for Jesus, as we call them today, um, were so deep in religion and tradition that they were still a little bit confused about the whole order of authority um, when in regard to Moses and to Jesus and you know who was in fact higher in, in the authority. Um, they were unsure. 
because they had been instilled with Moses being this, you know, the highest person basically in history. And Jesus was relatively new, so they were still trying to kind of figure out the whole Christianity thing. They believed he was God, but they didn't really know who was greater. They didn't really know who to believe. Um, so the author here is just trying to clear it up to them. He's trying to make it the path straight for them. So because they're unsure, he's trying to show them that Christianity is the natural progression from Ju- Judaism. It is the fulfillment of the law in Christ. He fulfilled that law. So let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 19, and then we'll break it down. Hebrews 3, verse 1, the Bible says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of, heavenly, of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all of his house, for this one had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, <clears throat> but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of the things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the days of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold to the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all those who come, came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of their unbelief. All right, guys. So let's go ahead and break this down. So we see here in verses 1 through 2, we see the author addressing Um, the Jewish people, where he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle, the high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all of his house. So he's speaking to the Jews, trying to turn their focus from Moses to Jesus. So again, Moses was regarded as like the top of the top, right? He was like the standard. He was the lawgiver, the giver of God's law, He was regarded to as the holiest, basically, in Jewish culture. Um, He led the children of Israel out of Egypt. He parted the sea. This man was astounding in what he was able to do for the children of God. So they really looked up to him. They really respected him and revered him. And again, the status of Moses was pounded into their head as Jews probably their entire lives. You know, this, 
this respect, this reverence, this almost fear of the law of Moses and what Moses stood for. So from a very early age, being the Jewish culture, it was just embedded in them, embedded in them to really respect and fear Moses as the highest authority. But the author asks the, to consider the apostle and high priest Jesus. So to the Jews, the great apostle was Moses. Right? So this is the new concept for them. Apostle means one who is sent. So Moses was sent by God to free the children of Israel, to deliver them from their bondage, to part the sea, to lead them to the promised land. So when they hear the great apostle, they instantly think Moses, because that's what they're taught. But he says, I want you to consider the apostle Jesus Christ and high priest. And when they hear of the high priest, the Jews are probably rang a bell as being Moses' brother Aaron, because that's what he was known as. So he's really going against the culture of the Jews here and saying that this is our high priest. This is our great apostle. So he's saying that Jesus Christ fulfills both roles in one being because he is the living son of God. The one who God not only sent for the children of Israel as God sent for Moses to, to save them, but God sent Jesus to save the entire world, Jew and Gentile. So he is the greatest apostle and the greatest high priest. So Jesus was and is faithful to the one appointed him. So being God the Father, just as Moses was faithful to his house, meaning the, the people he served faithfully. So Jesus' only motivation was for the will of the Father. He was faithful to one thing and one thing only, and that was God Almighty. Verses 3 through 4. <clears throat> For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. So this is where the influence of the world and the influence of God's kingdom meet. Right? So the Jews are showing um, that Moses is worthy of the glory, and we have Jesus Christ being proclaimed as worthy of more glory than Moses. So their kind of heads are like all spinning right now because these people are telling them one thing, and these new Christians are telling them one thing, and it goes against what they believed and grew up with. So they're just like, what is the truth? So he's trying to tell them. <clears throat> so God is the one who built all things. So he's trying to get across the fact that Jesus is the creator of everything, that he made Moses, that he is worthy of the praise because he's the one that sent Moses to save them because he is one with his father. So he is God. So he's trying to impact this notion of Jesus being Lord. And, you know, this is a trap of, as I see a lot of believers that we get stuck in too. You know, we as Christians have this terrible habit of allowing something good in our lives to keep us back from something great. You know, we settle on something good. We settle on something that is less than God wants to give us. And we miss the great things sometimes that God has for us because we're so comfortable with this good thing that we sacrifice the great thing that God might have for us. You know, I'm comfortable here. I'm comfortable going to church just sitting in the pew and not serving in ministry. You know, I'm comfortable in my job. I don't really want to change. I'm comfortable um, with just living the life that I have right now, and I don't really want to leave my comfort zone. I don't want to be made uncomfortable. I'm just going to stay here and do what I do in my little 
routine. I'm not going to go outside my bubble uh, because we're scared of change. We're scared of being made uncomfortable and we're scared of leaving our comfort zone. So many of us can miss the, the full call that God has on our lives because we're sacrificing something good or something great for something good. So that's what he's saying here is don't miss the fact that, you know, Moses is a good man. He's a decent example. He was a decent man. He has decent morals. He had decent moments in life. He did some pretty good things. Um, but he also messed up. He had some really high highs and some really low lows. Um, but he's trying to say that Jesus is the best, that Jesus is the greatest, that he is the standard, that he is spotless and sinless. He's the best example, the best man, the best moments in life, the only one to do this thing called life perfectly. So he's saying, don't miss that relationship. Don't miss serving that for something that's just kind of good in Moses, right? So don't miss that full call. But the Jews were tempted um, into settling into their comfort zone for what they had always known. And in doing so, they were in danger of missing what God has for their lives. And, you know, we definitely, 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 including myself, fall for that trap. You know, because God might be calling you to something greater than what you're doing now. He might be calling you to maybe start your own ministry or serve in ministry or, you know, go to a certain kind of people or move your job or whatever, start a family and you don't want to do it because it makes you uncomfortable because of the unknown, but you're missing something great that God has for you. So, I mean, it's really up to us. We don't have to participate with what God has for us, but um, that's what he's trying to warn them here is don't miss this great opportunity because they had their salvation. They believed in Christ, but don't miss the fullness of it. Verses 5 through 6. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for, the, for a testimony of these things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So again, Moses was faithful to his house, to his people. He testified for the things to come. Um, essentially, he brought the law to the Jewish people. So Moses brought the law to the Jewish people. That's what he had to offer. That's what he's mostly known for, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. He allowed the Jewish people to have a relationship with God through that legality. Right? So he's, they still were able to know God, but it was more of a legal relationship. So the problem with this kind of relationship is it's based on laws. And when your relationship is based on laws, you tend to see how far you can bend the rules, how much you can get away with, how far you can take the law without actually breaking it. You begin to twist it and compromise it for your own selfish gain. You start to look for loopholes and how can I get away with this with still having this relationship with God? Well, I'm technically not, you know, having sex outside of marriage because I'm watching porn and no, don't try to justify that. Pleasuring yourself, yes, that's a sin. Man or woman, doesn't matter. That's a sin because that's made for your husband or your wife. Well, I mean, I don't get drunk all the time. I mean, it's just once in a while. So, so we tend to look for loopholes when we live under the law. We tend to see how far we can push that, that law without actually breaking it. Then we deceive ourselves and we compromise you think, technically I didn't break any rules. And it's a very, very dangerous place 
um, because you tend to live your life and your relationship with God on the bare minimum requirements. You know, what can I just barely do so I can still go to heaven? And, you know, many Catholics, from my experience, I grew up a little bit Catholic on, on Easter Sunday and Christmas. Um, they, I, you know, I went to one of my, my best friend's weddings, I think last summer, and that's exactly what it was. You know, we go to church and everybody does their Hail Marys and they stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, recite their prayers and, you know, the holy water and all that stuff. It's very religious. They're doing the things they think they need to do legally to get to heaven. And then afterwards, we all go, you know, to the restaurant and everybody starts pumping the kegs and everybody starts passing out and drinking liquor and beer and like, you're trying, they're seeing how far they can go away. They think they're getting to heaven because they're going to church and they're doing these things and they're saying these prayers. So they're trying to fill the minimum requirements while still living in the flesh, trying to get the same benefit of heaven. And that's, that's a dangerous place to live your life. That's not where we should be. And that's what religion is. So where Moses brought the legal relationship, Jesus Christ brought us to a place where it's a loving family relationship with our Father in heaven. And this relationship produces in us what we want in a relationship, which is for us to please the Father, for us to do good things to make Him happy because He loves us unconditionally. You know, just like a child with their parents. The child doesn't love, or the parents don't love the kid because the kid gets a 4.0. That's good. You should want to get good grades to please your parents because they're your parents and you love them. But your parents love you because... You're their child, not based on your GPA, not based on how many chores you do, not based on, you know, how great you are at basketball or if you got awards. That's not why, those are good things to maybe make your family and your, you know, happy, good works, but that's not why your parents love you. They love you because you're their kid. So that's what Jesus Christ brought into us is that family loving relationship. And it produces again, the will to please the father, to stay close to him, to stay as close to him as we can where our heart's desire is to see his will be done as opposed to our will, except on Sundays and maybe like a Wednesday here and there or, you know, whatever it is. We put his will above our own. So for me, when I think about this idea of legalistic relationship that Moses brought and this loving family relationship that Jesus Christ brought, I mean, for me, I'd rather be God's son than God's employee when I really think about it. Because when an employee is under law, you're supposed to do certain things by the book as an employee. So I want to be God's son. I don't want to be God's employee trying to legally do everything I have to do correctly. I want that love based on the fact that I'm his child. So that's what the difference that he's trying to get at is he's your father in heaven. You know, he brought the law, but this is your father. And this was a revolutionary idea to these Jews because they had been stuck in legalism their whole lives. And that's all they know is traditions. And, you know, got as bad as even, as you guys might know, tithing 10% of their spices because they're just trying to be so holy and please God. And really, that's not what pleases God. God hates that. Verses 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with, with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart 
and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So here the author is giving the Jews a warning on behalf of the Holy Spirit. It says this is what the Holy Spirit is saying. So this is a huge crossroad for these Jewish people that are giving their life to Christ. They believe in, in Yeshua, Mashiach, Jesus Christ, Messiah. They want to be saved. They want to get to heaven. It's all making sense, but they're being pulled back into the world. Um, so it's a huge crossroad for these people. They finally come out of Judaism. They have finally come into belief. And the warfare is strong. They're being tempted back to the traditions that oppressed them and the law that bound them. And they're being tempted to add to the gospel. So this is a warning he's giving them. He's, they're saying that it's Jesus and works. It's Jesus and how good you keep the law. Jesus and traditions that save you. And nothing is further from the truth. It's Christ alone. So many people back then, especially the Romans, were okay with the fact if you believed in Jesus and other things going to heaven. No one had a problem with that. It was Jesus and Caesar. Okay, we're down for that. You know, we weren't gonna, It was when you said Christ alone is the name above all names by which men must be saved. That was the problem. And it's just like today, you know, when we say, oh yeah, Jesus is the way for heaven for me, but you might have a different path. It's kind of like that whole coexist movement. You know, all paths lead to heaven when in reality, that's the most ignorant thing ever because if you actually study them, they're completely opposite of each other and they contradict each other. And it's crazy, but no one's offended if you think Jesus is your way to heaven. That's how you have your relationship with God. It's when you guys say Jesus is the way to heaven. When you say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. That's when people start losing their minds and start going crazy. But nonetheless, that's the truth. So we let God be true and every man a liar. But these people were trying to add to the gospel. Revelation 22, 18 through 19 gives us a stern warning against adding to the gospel. It says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of the prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Ooh, that's pretty, that's a pretty stern warning. Don't be adding to my word. Don't be subtracting to my word. It's saved by grace through faith. You know, yesterday we watched a movie at the College and Career called The Atheist Illusion, and there was a panel of people discussing religion, and one person, they're arguing, and one person says, it's all religion is just about being a good person. You just got to be a good person. That's what every religion boils down to, and that's how you get to heaven. And there was one Christian, and she goes, no, it's not. Christianity is saved by grace through faith. And everyone was like, what, what, what? Like none of these people had ever heard that. And that's a revolutionary idea. So to add things, to add works, is dangerous. Because you're leading people astray. And you'll be held accountable, especially if you know the truth. It's dangerous, again. Very dangerous to do what was going on. And what's going on today in our world is dangerous. All right, back to the warning. So the author is reminding them of the children of Israel that wandered the wilderness for 38 years. They were delivered from Egypt. The sea was parted in front of their very eyes. 
and they decided not to trust God in the wilderness and they did not take him at his word. So for me, I have trouble with this. Like I'd like to believe if I was a children delivered from Egypt and I saw all these crazy plagues and I saw this ocean part and I got to walk like on top of starfish and coral and stuff, like trying to get across this ocean that's just giant water walls, that I would never doubt God again. But obviously that's not the truth because these people saw these great miracles and they didn't take God at his word. They didn't believe him. Every Jew knew this story like the back of their hand and it was an uncomfortable reminder of what can happen when you resist God, how they wandered and they died in the wilderness. So don't do it. Don't make the same mistake your ancestors made is what he's telling them. And that kept them from the promised land, kept them from experiencing the land of milk and honey. He's saying, don't do this, guys. Don't do it again. You should know better. This happened before. Don't resist God's word. You know the truth. That generation that stirred up God's anger because of their unbelief in what God clearly told them, that they would inherit this land. And it was a powerful reminder for them and for us that we should be taking God at his word. We should be trusting God because we see what happens over and over and over through the Bible when people don't take God at his word and how they struggle through certain things and how they, they fall down and they stumble and God brings them to a place to where they're broken and he has to restore them because they decided to do it their own way instead of trusting in what his word says. And he's saying, don't do that, guys. Don't do that. It didn't work for your ancestors in the wilderness, obviously, because they died. Don't do it now. You know the truth. Verses 12 through 15. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end while it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion." So it's tempting. I'm going to be honest with you guys. The world is tempting. The world, the flesh, what the devil wants to bless us with, the devil can bless us too. Don't be fooled. Um, he can give you good stuff that satisfies you temporarily. I'm sure you heard, you know, sin is a pretty thing. You know, it's not, the, it's not a red scary devil. It's a woman in a you know, tight black dress and high heels looking good. Like that's what he wants to try to bless you with. Things like that appeal to your flesh. They seem good because they appeal to your sin nature. And it's very tempting to depart from the word of the living God. Honestly, you look at the world around you and sometimes you start to buy into the lies that, wow, look at these people over here. They don't believe in God and they're always so happy. All I see on their Facebook or, you know, in their lives is good things and they're, they seem so fulfilled. Uh, but you don't see into their hearts. You don't see the pain that they're enduring, the, the hope that they don't have. So it's very tempting to depart from the word of the living God and to try to ride that fine line of living for my pleasure, of living for the things I want, while still having one foot in heaven. So we're trying sometimes to live with one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. And we can't be a double-minded man. The Bible tells us it's not good. Um, But it's very, very tempting because the world is fun. Sin feels good. That's why we struggle with it. And I've said this before too, this is, doesn't really have anything to do with the study, but we can't try, as a church, we can't try to outfund the world. 
because we'll never do it. The world will always be more fun than a Wednesday night Bible study. I'm sorry. It's whatever the world has to offer. It's probably more appealing than what the world has, what Bible study, because it's sinful out there and it appeals to your sin nature. And this is for the spirit and we're strengthening and we're denying ourselves to be here. You know, we could be watching the NBA finals game right now, enjoying some great basketball that's going on, but we're not, we're here listening to the word of God because that's, what's going to bring us treasures in heaven. So that's why fellowship is so important as he states here, you know, who are you spending the majority of your time with? Is it believers or unbelievers? Because we're told that light has no fellowship with darkness. We're called to witness and to do work in the world and to be around unbelievers, but we're not called to have extensive fellowship relationships with them because light doesn't have fellowship with the darkness. Because that's where temptation subtly starts to sneak in when we're around worldly people, when we're around people that aren't saved too much. You know, I notice it with some of my family when I hang out with them, not walking in the spirit, and I start to act like someone I don't like. And I start to treat my wife a certain way that's disrespectful, and I start to compromise things. And sometimes I'll start, it's been a while, but like I'll say a few cuss words that I haven't said in a while, and I'm like, whoa, like it rubs off on you quick, that dirt from the world. But who are we around? That's why the author here tells us to exhort each other daily, to build each other up today, to pour truth into each other's lives because in the light, the darkness flees, the Bible says. So when we're around the light all the time, the darkness has no room to get in. So we need to be in that light. We need to be around the light where um, other believers and fellowship and Bible studies and things like that because it keeps the darkness out. You gotta be around like-minded people. But when we distance ourselves from the light, that's when our hearts begin to harden. We, t- we are partakers of Christ. And we're called to be partakers of Christ daily to pick up our cross and deny ourselves daily, to put on Christ daily. That's what we're called to do. And that's what prevents the hardening of our hearts is when we do that, when we deny ourselves, when we deny our will, when we pick up our cross, when we're in fellowship with him, when we're praying, when we're in the word, Bible studies, church, those are things that prevent our heart from being hardened because it can harden really, really quick. And that's the warning he's giving. Verses 16 through 19, and we'll finish here. For who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in because of their unbelief. Now the author here is bringing it all together. He's tying it all in. Um, He's trying to make sense of it all, bring the exclamation point for these Jewish people that are kind of stuck, a little confused. Um, So granted, these Jews have given their lives to Christ, so they're sealed. They're going to heaven. But it's an interesting parallel we see here. The reminder again of the children of Israel not being able to enter the promised land. He brings it up again. So these people are going to heaven, but he warns them of the children of Israel that didn't go to the promised land. That doesn't make any sense if we're sealed, if we're going to heaven, right? If we can't lose our salvation. So a lot of people think the promised land represents heaven. It doesn't. The promised land is not heaven. 
The promised land represents the spirit-filled life, walking by the spirit, experiencing the goodness of God. That's what the promised land represents. It does not represent heaven in itself. In the promised land, there are many adversaries. There are giants. There are tribulations that they had to overcome. There's wars they had to fight. There are no giants in heaven. There are no tribulations in heaven. There are no wars we have to fight in heaven. So that those don't parallel together. There's no such things in heaven as that. So the promised land speaks of the life walking in the spirit. So we're going to heaven if we generally have received Christ. But what do our lives look like here on earth? That's what he's getting at. The author is posing the question, how do you guys want to spend your life? How do you guys want your life to be? Wandering around the wilderness for 38 years, not trusting God, complaining until you die and you're just a corpse, eating manna from heaven that doesn't taste very good, like tasteless angel food cake. I hate angel food cake. I think it's the worst thing. But is that how you want your life to be? Or do you want our life to be experiencing the fullness of what God has for us and eating milk and honey and experiencing these sweet, rich things, these blessings that God has for us? Or are we settling on just the plain old stuff that the world has to offer? Again, it comes back to the idea of sacrificing something great for something that will get you by, something that's good. And we see that, you know, what kept them out of the promised land, what kept them out of experiencing the fullness of what God had for them to experience wasn't not praying enough. It wasn't not reading your Bible enough. It wasn't not going to church. It wasn't any of these things that we all stress about every day. Oh my gosh, I didn't read my Bible enough. I didn't go to church this week. Oh my gosh, I haven't prayed in three days. These things that we worry are like going to send us to hell and God's going to be angry with us. That wasn't what it was. It was simply their unbelief that kept them out of the promised land. Their unbelief in what God had said in his word. And that's what keeps us from experiencing the spirit-filled life and the promised land of this life that we can have right now with God in a relationship with him is his unbelief in his word. Not believing that he'll provide for you. Not believing that he has a plan for you. Not believing that you're worthy of of what he did on the cross for you. These kinds of things, not believing in what God says, is what keeps us from experiencing that fullness. So their unbelief that God God could deliver them from giants and tribulations stood in their way from taking that very land which they were rightfully to inherit. And it was their unbelief. So they settled on the wilderness. And God sustained them for 40 years and fed them. And they lived, but they didn't live a very good life. They were angry and they complained a lot. And that's what happens to Christians that don't live a spiritual life. They become angry. They become people I don't like to be around sometimes. So they're still going to heaven. They're a Christian. That's cool. But how are you spending your life? <clears throat> and, you know, I heard a really good explanation of this is, as Christians, we're all on the airplane going to heaven. And what it comes down to is, do you want to ride in first class? Or do you want to ride with the bags in the bottom of the plane? First class is a much better place to sit. They got awesome food service. They got big chairs, TVs, fans. You can experience that. If you take God's word, believe what he says. Or mm, you can ride with the bags and the dogs and the cats in the bottom of the plane. It smells and it stinks and there's nowhere to sit and it hurts. And turbulence, you got no seatbelt. But guess what? We're all still going to the same place. 
It's just how do you want to spend this life on our way to heaven? You want to sit in first class or do you want to sit in the baggage claim? So that's what he's telling them, you know. He's trying to encourage them that you guys have it right, but don't settle for something that's just okay that the world has to offer when you have access to the greatest thing the world has ever known in Jesus Christ, our great apostle and our great high priest. Amen? All right, guys, let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this uh, awesome chapter, Lord, and just this idea of how we want to spend our life, Lord. We are sealed, Lord. We are going to heaven if we are in you, if we have repented, if we have believed that you are Lord and that you died for us. We're going, we're coming, we're going to spend eternity with you, but I pray that we would just have a desire to serve you here, Lord, and experience a little bit of heaven at a greater level here on earth as we just walk and talk with you and experience the things you have for us. So I pray, Lord, that you would just help us do that every day and that you just be with us and, and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.